Hello, everyone, and welcome to Future Imagined, a Foresight podcast dedicated to future thinking, powered by MGS Insights. I'm Joe Lapore. I lead Foresight for North America as part of Mars Wrigley Global Foresight. In the first six episodes of the show, we dove into the most pressing shifts likely to make changes to the world that we know coming out of the pandemic recovery and into the next normal. In these following episodes, we're going to dive deeper, specifically into the behaviors, values, tensions, and transformations taking place within people, markets, and industries to answer your biggest questions of what will likely shape the further out future and hopefully inspire what role you can play within that. For this set of deeper conversations, we're bringing in some truly expert thinkers, starting today as we explore youth culture. Specifically, we'll look at the biggest challenges and the biggest motivations in the decade ahead for Gen Z. That's the 32% of the global population of young people aged 11 to 26. I'm Mark Adams, SVP of Innovation at Vice. Been there for seven years now. Previously used to work in the entertainment industry at a company called William Morris Endeavour looking after the likes of Lady Gaga and Usher and really just happy to be here. I'm in Dubai at the moment, so it's nice to speak to people outside because it's Ramadan right now, so there's no leaving the house or doing much, so this is as good as my week's going to get. Hi everyone, my name is Mary Lee Bliss and I'm the VP of Content at YPulse, the leading research group focused completely on Gen Z and millennials, studying and talking to young consumers to try to help brands understand the next generations. Our main office is in New York, but currently all working from around the country, spending a lot of time looking at each other on screens. Hi everyone, my name is Katie and I'm from BBDO Shanghai. My role is Group Planning Directors and I provide strategic planning and consumer insights for brands and companies. This chat is going to go far. We have a lot to cover and I'm going to start by going deep on the conversation. The expectations for Gen Z are incredibly high, but they are always so for young people as young people are destined to be the saviors of the past, fixing all of our bad deeds. They're more pure and more redeeming with greater resources at their disposal. So in part as a result of that spotlight on the faults of the world and that pressure to fix them, they're always a little bit cynical. As Malcolm X said, the young people are the ones who most quickly identify with the struggle and the necessity to eliminate the evil conditions that exist. So Mark, I know that you and I have had some fab conversations that go deep, so I'll throw this one straight at you. What are Gen Z most disillusioned with and what are they most empowered to change? That's a great question. And we have had a few good conversations on this in the past. I think every generation has serious issues that need to be resolved. And I think it's quite a philosophical way of looking at it. But, you know, there's a, there's a guy that I'm really a big fan of called Bruce Mao, and he's a designer. And he says, you know, it's natural that that should be the case because everything that we've built, all of our progress has had externalities. And what we tend to do is those externalities, it's kind of like cleaning your room when you were a kid and your mum and dad would be like, clean that room and you know you can get dinner. And so you basically just chuck everything under the bed or where you can't see it anymore. And so the essence of externalities is just how do we put things in places where we can no longer feel the psychological effects of them. And every generation has found that the ultimate place to put all their externalities and all the things that they're creating as a side effect of progress is the future. 
there's no better under the bed than the future, right? So what we do is we throw forward as much as we possibly can. And we think to ourselves, well, frankly, you know, that's not really my problem. But I think that has come to a very, very sharp edge now with climate. Right. And I think, you know, obviously we might sort of start with a big one. I think that the thing that throws everything into question now is the climate crisis, because that is not a distributional issue of justice over generations. That is like the end of history. So I think what, what Gen Z have really realized is that every generation has been passed the bill for the previous generation's nice meal, but no generation has ever been passed the bill this big. And I think Obama said something really interesting, which is it is beyond it is beyond an injustice. We have to invent a new word to pass on an environment to a generation that they themselves and all the technology that they have available are incapable of redeeming. And I think there's that sense now that we might be at that point. So I really think we might have reached like zero sum game. And that has created this total Di totally different level of kind of intergenerational justice, which therefore then impacts on everything because Gen Z are saying, I just want to know where are all the adults? We're told that we're the kids. So where are the adults? What are they doing? Like, I think the climate crisis throws that question out there, which is like, who is an adult? Because if they're allowing this, then maybe they're just old, but not adults. That's the scar tissue that they're growing up with, but it is absolutely fascinating. And I couldn't be more pro Gen Z <laughs> if I tried, you know, like I just think those guys deserve every single bit of our support because they have a very difficult situation. It's a really interesting nuance that you touched on there with the environmental issue in particular, but this notion that as you get older, you sort of lose your ability to drive optimism into action, specifically around the environment. You know, some of the stats that I think I've read is that Gen Z feel more negative about the future of the environment than any other generation, but they're turning that negativity into action and not letting it be this overwhelming thing that nothing can be done. Yeah, absolutely. I always come back to movies because they're a good heuristic for big ideas. But, you know, there's that line where Aragorn says in Lord of the Rings, I give hope to others, I keep none for myself. And I think it's the opposite way around with Gen Z. They basically say, we have this massive hope gap. We don't think it's all going to be okay, but we're not relying on anyone else to fix it either. So they're unbelievably pragmatic. 54% of them believe the world will be fundamentally changed in their generation for the worse. But 98% of them are like taking it on themselves to change that. I mean, if that's not the hero's journey, I don't know what is. It's almost like one of the principles of Gen Z is this kind of pragmatism. They embrace the negative data, but try as much as possible to maintain a positive outlook and advice. We've even given this a name and we call it willfulness. And it basically, if you imagine we had mindfulness and that was very much defined, you know, my generation, you know, we were like taking selfies of our avocado and toast and like loving Harry Potter. And these guys, there's what I would call willfulness. They basically realize that the situation is pretty bleak, but they believe that the power of the human will is pretty much the most powerful thing they have. And that's the one secret weapon that they have. And so they almost take this point of view that, yeah, the day is bad but you have to have a positive outlook that's driven by the will because otherwise you would give up. Previous generations are like, well, what's to be done? I mean, you know, we are where we are, you know? Gen Z are like, no, that's just letting yourself off the hook. So if you look at Vice back in the day, like Vice was a kind of FU kind of 
magazine you know it was a it was all about f you and f this and 20 years ago now it's the total opposite it's like the way to show that you're cool in gen z is to care so it's it's an f yeah not an f you and so like the the saddest most pathetic people that gen z ever meet are people who are like the way I was in the 90s about like, you know, I was kind of a Kurt Cobain Nirvana fan. And I was like, F you, mum and dad, F you, F everything, who cares, you know? And they are the total opposite. They're like, no, people who think that, idiots. You show how cool you are by caring. And I just think that's so much better than I was at that age. Are you a Gen Xer? Am I outing your age then? <laughs> I am a Gen X, yeah. Gen X is really interesting because after the baby boomers, they had to start with letters again with Gen X because they resisted being defined. You're really speaking to this sort of rebelliousness that came from that generation. Mary Lee, I know that you've got a lot of really great data on this as well and around some of those tensions that they're feeling and some of those pressures that they're facing. Yeah, absolutely. When we first started studying Gen Z, there was this hypothesis that, you know, because they were being raised by Xers, that Gen Z would inherit that. And exactly what Mark said, that whatever of this, I don't, I'm not getting involved, maybe some of that apathy. But we found from the very start that the opposite is true, that despite their, you know, realistic views of the world, they are positive about the future for themselves. And the majority do believe that their generation can change things. And we've seen really clearly in the last year that young people, Gen Z especially, are leading a new kind of activism that hasn't been seen before. They do feel empowered to make change in the world. And we have seen that really clearly in our research. I keep on wanting to say Gen Z. So Mark, I'm so happy when you say Gen Z. It's my Aussiness that I'm trying to suppress. Um, but when people talk about Gen Z, they often go hand in hand with the activism that they're very much known for. And I mean, there's been activism within the youth going back, like even baby boomers were some of, of the course. biggest activists. But it's sort of synonymous with that generation now. And I love to just think through the tag that they get of being these world-saving activists that care about these issues deeply versus the pressure that they put within their own circle of group to be this way because it's an expectation of a Gen Z. So I'm really curious, like how much of this is actually really authentically driven by what they find meaningful versus the pressure that's put on them to care? Because Gen Z is so connected and constantly connected with their peers more than any other generation ever has been, you know, they are literally carrying their friends around with them in their hands, something that millennials would have loved to do. You know, we would run home to get on AIM, but they don't have to. They're always with their friends. There's two sides to that. One, you know, you're able to share things more easily. You're able to share information more easily. And I think education for Gen Z often often comes from their peers because they are constantly speaking to one another, literally. But there's also the other side where, you know, of course, that then creates pressures to do the things that other people are. Katie, I'll let you jump in on this one as well, because I feel like it's a really interesting topic that we've gone down with Gen Z and particularly around fighting for causes and showing that you care and being very vocal through social media around the things that they find important. How is that coming to life in China? 
I think Chinese Gen Z are more interested about the national pride, global politics. China is already in a very different situation, and they're developing the economy. So that's why they always have a different national narrative about the country, and they really want to share their perspective with others. Apart from this, I think they are more engaged with social topics. And also, they really care about the people who are living in the lower tier city or even in the rural area, because if you understand China, I think the gap between city and rural area are huge. So I think this really shows that the Gen Z and China right now they have a stronger social responsibility, and like what Mark said before, they have visions of an ideal society and they are fighting for it, and they are very united. So that's why、uh, we can see a lot of movements are happening online, and brands and business have to take their voices seriously because they will use their actions to express their perspective. If they boycott a brand, they mean it. They just don't buy it. I think that is the power of the younger generation right now, and what we can do is respect them and listen to them. So well put, Katie. And I think that rise of really supporting Chinese brands and things that are homegrown—that's starting to come through in China quite prominently with that generation as well. You're absolutely right. I think in a way they are very proud of the products itself. They do believe that the product is a、uh, is good quality and the designs are. Um, well considered for Chinese consumer, and also it has the Chinese culture that they start to understand. So that's why the trend of national pride is really coming through. We see the same thing in the U.S. Absolutely, when we ask young consumers what. Causes they want brands involved in. They want brands to weigh in on really sensitive topics. You know, Black Lives Matter is one that they really do want brands to be vocal about. But when it comes to politics, supporting specific politicians or specific parties, that is absolutely where the line is drawn. There is backlash in the U.S. against companies who do that. When, especially when the politicians that are being supported are not the ones that Gen Z believes should be. In power. The other thing that I'd love to unpick within that is the nuance between supporting sort of big issues that are world changing, like solving the environmental crisis. That's a really big weight put on young people to help fix, versus some of those smaller issues that we've seen them really lean into. Mark, what is the thing that they're really leaning into? Is it really fixing those big issues, or just fixing what they can? I think youth can be criticised. For being maybe too idealistic, and you know, every single generation is going to change the world, right? But then when they all end up just chasing the dollar, having kids, and that's how it all ends, right? Every time, you know, there was a great quote that said, like, the 20th century saw more death to do with war than any century in the history of mankind, and there was all these incredible technological events that happened, and you know, we created amazing steps forward and other things. But the thing that we will actually be remembered for the 20th century more than anything is that it's the first time ever. That we have tried to make the welfare of all human beings something that we actually practically consider, and I think Gen Z just naturally get that. You know, if you look at the preamble to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, that was probably one of the first times people have written down like, "Oh yeah, you know, by the way, like all people have dignity and are born equal just by virtue of being alive." You know, it's actually a fundamental shift in the constitution of the social contract. But Gen Z just live it. Like it took eighty-five. Ninety years for a generation to come along and just live that. 
And it's so true as well that a lot of these things that we're seeing, they are just coming into fruition now or coming into laws and mandates or coming into common conversation. These things that probably should have happened much, much sooner and much quicker. And it's almost baffling how late it's come in. So that leads me to another question, which is, how do you think they're going to handle the slow progress that will more than likely happen due to government speed of action and regulations and the way that things tend to fall out? Do you think that they'll become disillusioned because of that or will they keep fighting the good fight? I think there's a certain amount of disillusionment that every generation does go through, but I think that they are armed with different tools and their expectations might actually help to change the the speed of the process as opposed to them having to wait around because older generations don't move fast enough on the larger issues versus the smaller issues and which they get involved in and which they're taking action on. For Gen Z, the big issues, the global issues are actually impacting their day-to-day lives. Their fears about climate aren't existential. 50% tell White Pulse that they have actually changed their future plans already because of climate change. They tell us the majority that they try every day to live sustainably because of their fears around climate change. And the majority worry about climate change daily or weekly. Like this is a constant thing that's on their mind. So they're very personally connected to the big issues. I'd love to talk a little bit more about some of the other issues that they face, because one of the questions that I have is, you know, are they growing up too quickly? Is the expectation of them to be an adult and start saving the world's problems a little bit too great? And one of the things that I'm personally super inspired by is what the Royal Society for Public Health has called them, the public health champions, particularly when it comes to talking about mental health issues and raising awareness around anxiety levels and depression and they've got unemployment to deal with and they've got this sort of rising mental health issue. And Mary Lee, I guess to your point, these things are really, really big issues for everybody, but it feels like they're the things that they're sort of now taking on board to change or to at least start a conversation about. Absolutely. I think we've seen really clearly in our data that Gen Z's mental health has been more negatively impacted by the events of the last year. Mental health resources will be incredibly important to this generation, not just this year, but moving forward for the rest of their lives. They, as I said, are more open about mental health. The majority agree they want to live in a world where people openly talk about their mental health struggles. Gen Z music artists, for example, are writing songs about depression and struggling with substance abuse and tackling really serious issues in a very open way. So that open conversation is something they're looking for, but they're also looking for support, literal like resources that they're willing for brands to be involved in this conversation. Are data shows that the majority say it's appropriate for brands to talk about mental health. They also want schools and employers to provide mental health days and meditation and mindfulness training and things that will actually arm them with tools to help in the future. And they're incredibly wise. And like I mentioned before, they are a little bit cynical. So they cut through the BS and really see when someone's trying to market to them as a brand versus when they're reaching out with a genuine interest to align the brand purpose with the product that they're trying to sell. 
So, Mark, I'm curious to know how that comes to life in everything that you've seen in the culture of Gen Z and what they're embracing around bringing to life some of those issues and what good looks like versus what do they reject as being fake? Well, we used to say that millennials had a BS detector. Then we realized that Gen Z have a BS flamethrower. <laughs> so they won't just detect that you're not telling the truth if you're a brand. They will flame you, right? And like what I love about it is this is a highly abstract thing to say, but like if you take a Buddhist point of view of the world, which is there is this infinite one and that we are all an expression of that one. And you could then map that onto the modern technological evolution and start to realize that like, yeah, well, the internet is an interconnected set of networks. We are now able to discover one another pretty much to a person through these networks without any regard to time or space, because it doesn't matter if someone's in another country. Essentially, you end up with this kind of really, really weird thing where I think Gen Z are starting to really wake up to the true power of what they have, which is the ability to form community networks. If you know a brand wants to come and genuinely contribute in some meaningful way, they will listen and they will give the brand support. But if a brand comes with a lofty brand purpose about something that they wrote in a boardroom with a consultant, it all comes down to the contribution. So basically, like one of the things I'd say if you're a brand listening to this is your brand purpose means sweet FA to this generation. Like it means absolutely nothing. It might be good for your internal comms or to make people feel that they're doing a better job or doing something important with their time and their life. But to Gen Z, if you're not making a practical and pragmatic contribution, your brand purpose is just to be mocked. Wipos has done a lot of research around this. Really interestingly, the majority of both Gen Z and millennials, of course, say that brands support causes as a cynical ploy to make more money because they're smart, savvy consumers and they know how it works. That said, that doesn't mean they don't want you to. They still want your support, but they want that support to be really clearly active. And really what they want for brands to do is put their money where their mouth is. So I think that's a shift. Brands who have been really hesitant to talk about serious issues in the past because they're afraid of being torn down and having that blowtorch directed at them. You know, you need to do it in the right way. You need to be really clear, very vocal about the exact steps you're taking and how you're supporting things financially. But I don't think brands need to be as afraid anymore about stepping out of their own zones and touching on the big hot button issues that matter to Gen Z, even if they don't directly relate to the products you're selling because they're open to that according to our data. You know, there's an expression that like, if you're drowning in a, in a pool and a lifeguard comes, you don't ask to see their TV, you just get saved by them, right? And it's kind of the same, you know, I think absolutely what Mary Lee said there was absolutely bang on because there's a high degree of pragmatism. It's like, look, man, you want to get involved? Like, show us you're serious and we will bring you in. What I often say is brand purpose is the why and not the what. The campaign tagline, in a way, is to drive purpose, but that in itself means absolutely nothing. You might as well just say you have a strategy. So, Katie, I'd love to hear about how that comes to life in China and the Chinese consumers because they have an absolutely enormous spending power and they're obviously in a really unique position, the youth of China, where they're incredibly highly educated. Their debt is not as high because they're living at home and they're also getting support from their parents. So, What's often said is that they have a lot of discretionary spend. Are they putting that money towards the things that align with their personal values? 
I think in China, you don't have too many options when it comes to tech platforms. But when it comes to brands, I think they are able to express themselves by choosing these brands. So I think they can support the brand or agree with the brand, but they are not necessarily buying the brands. So they distrust this quite oftenly. Even if you ask them, like, which brands do you trust or not, they've been quite skeptical about this because they do feel that there's a distance between these big corporations and them. So that's why I feel like they really trust the KOL, the key opinion leaders online, rather than the brands. Am I right in saying that they're also moving away from the KOL towards KOCs or those people that are? less polished influencers and more people like themselves? I think that's correct because more and more KOL, the way they operate their platforms or channels are doing commercials for brands. So that would really make themselves less attractive to this young consumer because no one wants to follow you because they want to watch ads. <laughs> so that's why even though they still looking for the information about the products or the brands, they tend to choose the KOCs rather than the KOL because they believe that the KOCs are providing the authentic feedbacks for them. It feels like it's very much linked into what we're starting to see more broadly in the social media space with Gen Z and beyond, which is leaning into communities and like-minded trust and people that sort of reflect what's important to them and like-mindedness and I guess also a positive environment, not only just to be yourself and be authentic online, but also to have helpful conversations that are more productive and less about putting each other down or finding fault, but just truly being helpful communities. Well, when it comes to influencers and the social spaces, we did really see the kinds of content that was being accepted in the last year really shift. And while they're still, you know, following influencers or even more likely to follow influencers than they were before, they're also calling out influencers when they don't agree with what's going on. Like, as Mark said, you know, they know the power of their collective voice and they use it. They are looking up to people, but they're also very willing to be critical when they need to be. I'm obsessed with this idea, as, as you probably know, Joe. but I think when you look at the structure of the internet, if we take that it is an interconnected set of networks, which of course it is, I think the best way to see the true zeros and ones of the matrix, so to speak, in the internet is to look at YouTube comment sections. Why? Because one of the things it teaches you is that people will proxy around the campfire of an artist or a celebrity or a creator of some kind. But actually what they're seeking isn't necessarily the nourishment from that influencer. It's actually the community of being part of that artist. It's a really lovely way of finding your tribe and your community. And, and what you'll start to see is that like, you know, people are like, Oh my God, it's so lovely to be amongst such like-minded people who all appreciate this incredible thing. And you wonder if like, actually, I'm not sure if they would know this if you asked them, but I think people are starting to realize that it's being part of the community that matters more than being a fan of that one particular thing. I think the same thing when you look at market share is true for brands. So if you're a brand listening to this, I would say this word culture isn't particularly very useful. A question that cannot be answered 
and begs a second question isn't necessarily a very useful thing. So although Vice talks about culture all the time, one of the things that we tried to do was turn that from an art to a science. So we started saying, what are these networks that make up this thing called culture? Yes, it's really interesting that people can publish into these networks now, but what's much more interesting is that you can read the data back from them. So actually there's no good reason now why you can't use the right tools to identify what all these networks of communities are and then start saying, what are the ones that are most authentically relevant to our brand position and therefore should we start to target activate turn them into users of our product maybe even advocates just make sure that you are aware of the fundamental architecture of the modern world i.e networks of networks then start looking out across those networks figuring out which ones you have the authenticity to activate and go after and do so with exactly the same type of purity that Mary Lee just described, which is, you know, don't BS anyone. And all the growth you probably will ever need is in that strategy, I think. There's something else that you touched on there, which is Gen Z tend to lean into the like-mindedness of people that they share views with, which is so true. And I mean, who hasn't trolled through all of the comments of a Facebook post without even reading the article just to see what the comments are like? And you know, you go there for the memes, yeah. let's be honest. <laughs> um, and all of this sort of speaks to one of the fundamental social drivers of human behavior, which is belonging, right? It's to be a part of something. Which leads me to a maybe provocative question, which is that, you know, when we talk about Gen Z, we often speak as if they all align to the same view and that they all activate for the same causes. And it makes it sound like this big homogenous group. Do they challenge this homogenization of this identity that's been put on them as a Gen Z label? I do feel the Gen Z in China, they do have this rebellion in motions. The way they express it is not that intense, like I'm fighting against this or I'm fighting against that. It's actually very interesting. They turn that into a humor. They really like to mock themselves and to mock about the stuff that they are disagree with. I think this is a generation that growing up with the internet, they probably understand the truth about the society, about the hierarchies, and they said they are the most unlucky generations in China because when they graduate from the university, let's say, we don't have jobs, we don't have that many jobs in the society. Many of them, once they graduate, cannot have a proper job to enter the society. It's quite sad, but they don't have too much negative emotions around it. Instead, they mock about themselves and then they mock about the big corporate and they turn that into quite positive emotions and quite entertaining things online. And I feel that's a sort of optimism of this generations. Maybe they don't know how to solve the problem fundamentally, but they manage to find a way to survive and keep this positive vibe. I think that's really interesting. I totally agree. Dark humor is kind of a hallmark of Gen yes. Z. And yes. sometimes it's directed at other generations and sometimes it's directed at themselves. You know, I was trying to say that everything's fragmented. That means that it's easier to find the conversations that actually do matter to them. They're finding like-minded people. And that means you don't necessarily have to follow outside expectations because you're finding your community right where you're spending all your time. There was a chap that wrote a book called Lost Connections and it's about depression and anxiety. And he says, look, no wonder we're depressed and anxious because Gen X onwards 
were some of the first generations ever to disband their communities and tribes that were physical. I'm not saying it was quite tribal, but people didn't go and live in new places. Like I'm in Dubai right now, Joe's about to go move to New York. You know, we all do these things and we know, I think somewhere that the cost of that is that we lose this psychological connectedness that does have an extremely high price to pay. And so I think that we're trying to recreate those networks somewhere else. You know, we are tribal animals. We can't shake that. We're not going to evolutionize ourselves out of that one for many, many, many centuries to come. And so it makes total sense that the internet would try and provide us, even if arguably a much less good version of that psychological connectedness, that we would strive for that. And I think Gen Z might be the poster child for how well that experiment will go. I have one last question for all of you, which is a little bit of a prediction into the future. One of my favorite or least favorite quotes is from a Time magazine cover from 2013, which said, millennials are lazy, entitled narcissists who live with their parents. And I take that personally because I'm a millennial. I think, Marilee, you are as well. <laughs> Gee, why wouldn't we want to call ourselves millennials with those, you know, ringing endorsements? <laughs> Raving reviews, yeah. And, you know, I'd like to think that we've proven them all wrong and become quite <laughs> useful members of society. So if we think into five years from now or 10 years from now, when some of these Gen Z individuals are going to be hitting their 30s, for example, do you think that they're going to retain a lot of those values that they now hold or what does the future pose for them? You know, of course, it's hard to say exactly where Gen Z will be in their 30s, especially since, you know, we've all learned that the world can change on a dime. But what we do know is that they are not likely to follow a pre-prescribed path forward. I almost think wishful thinking a little bit on the part of brands and older generations who just want things to get back to normal. Why are millennials waiting so long to do everything? It's really inconvenient for us. I really hate to break it to any of the brands who are listening. That's just not going to happen. Gen Z is actually more likely than millennials to believe there is no correct order for achieving life milestones. Only 27% tell Y-Pulse that they have the same goals for their life as their parents had for theirs. So they're going to tackle life milestones in the order that works for them. Don't expect it to happen in the same way that it did for boomers because Gen Z is very much going to forge their own path. I think this is a generation that less easier to be manipulated by these brands or organizations. They have their own ways to understand the world and they can get access to the knowledge or information so easily online. So brands should be more transparent and respect them. And I think PR might play a bigger role than advertising. Brands and business, they do need to consider their communications through these two perspectives. How to win trust as well as to win affinity. In the end, there will be a normalization, absolutely. But I think what we're seeing is intractable and we've reached a point of no return on so many things now. Hopefully, we will see that the world is young and that we are moving forward. And I think we're gonna see the future being present, just unevenly distributed. We really are living in multiverses where some people think in very progressive ways and some people want to go back to a world that was simpler. And I don't think that's gonna go away. And I think Gen Z are gonna have a really big fight on their hands. And obviously, we just see our job is to just get in the fight with them and help them as much as possible. A big thank you to our brilliant guests today. 
With everything that you heard about Gen Z, let's think ahead to 2025 when some of them start high school, find their willfulness, as Mark said, and their tribes, or to 2030 when they become homeowners and someone's boss. How can we better know who they are today to understand their motivations in the future? What platforms, conversations, and products can we create to enable them to be successful for themselves and for everyone? Since I'll likely be in America by the time you listen to this, I'll end with a quote from President Roosevelt. We cannot always build the future for our youth, but we can build our youth for the future. This is Joe. Stay curious. Thank you.